Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to Real Stories Tapes, True Crime, a weekly podcast from Real Stories, the online home of exclusive and award-winning documentaries from all over the world. My name is Stephanie Bauer, and this series takes some of Real Stories' most compelling true crime documentaries and turns them into podcasts. This episode is the second installment of a four-part story based on the documentary Angel of Death. If you haven't heard the first episode, I'd recommend going back to listen to it. If you're joining the story now, though, you should know that a series of mysterious deaths on the ICU ward of a California hospital have raised suspicions about a respiratory therapist named Efren Saldervar. Could a member of the hospital's staff really be a killer? Some people's names and the name of the hospital have been changed. This story is narrated by Anthony Call. Rumors of murder at a California hospital sparked a police investigation. All the rumors seemed to center on one respiratory therapist. To find out whether they were true, detectives decided to question Efren Saldivar. They asked him to come down to the station. At this hour, Detective Will Curry was the only investigator on duty. Mr. Saldivar. He told Saldivar about the rumors and asked him to take a polygraph test to clear the matter up. Why don't we just go and meet with Detective Youngblood? Irvin Youngblood was the polygraph examiner. Curry briefed him on the investigation. He had mentioned to me that they really didn't suspect that this was actually occurring, that this may have been someone who just didn't like him and was giving some false rumors. So they wanted to uh, put it to rest. Detective Curry left Saldivar alone with the polygraph examiner and went to the department's bug room where he could monitor their conversation. Saldivar told Youngblood he didn't want to take the polygraph. It all of a sudden changed my perspective of things. At that point, I felt that there was something wrong with the person being that fearful of this. So I decided to step up my interview toward an interrogation. When I began to ask him, uh, did he kill the one? He was hesitant in his answer, and he said, I may have 
assist it in one way or the other. And that's why I'm afraid to take the polygraph. Then I asked him to explain to me what he meant by assisted. Saldivar began to tell Youngblood of an incident that occurred early in his career. There was a patient, it was a cancer patient, and it had been determined that the patient was not going to survive. And the doctors had said they were going to take the patient off of the respirator, but they had not done so. He described to me as how he saw that the patient was still breathing. Saldivar said he informed one of the intensive care nurses. The nurse indicated she expected him to do something about it. decided to go in and literally cause the patient to suffocate. Saldivar told Youngblood it took the patient 15 minutes to die. Saldivar admitted there were other times when he helped patients to die. Youngblood pushed him to reveal the number of patients he had murdered. Saldivar thought it was less than 50, but was unsure of the exact number. And he later uh, said that it was could be up to around 90. And then he began to tell me that this had also occurred at two other hospitals that he had uh, moonlighted at. So the figures went up even more. And before it was over, he told me that it could be as many as 200. I was really amazed at it. It was really hard for me to keep my composure there because I was just wondering how could you have done such a thing. The legal implications of Saldivar's confession soon hit Youngblood. I need to confer with one of the detectives now and decide how we're going to continue with this. I was thinking I need to find a way to get out of the room without losing rapport with this man and coming back and talking with him. Youngblood rushed from the room to find Curry waiting for him. The men needed to read Saldivar his rights, but they were afraid of spooking him and losing his cooperation. And I'll get the boys on the phone and bring him down. Okay, I'll show you. Detective Curry devised him of his constitutional rights. Surprisingly, he waived his rights and continued to talk to us. The investigators expected Saldivar to deny everything, but suddenly they had a serial murder confession. I don't care about that. I need you guys to understand. Detective Curry asked for help. Sergeant McKillop got the call. And it was Will Curry telling me that uh, we got a major problem and I better come back to work. Um, he said, this guy's rolling over. Detective Curry placed Saldivar under arrest. Detectives Fuchsia and McKillop arrived within the hour. They also called the district attorney and their chief. This was potentially the biggest case of their careers. If Saldivar's confession was true, 
then he had murdered more people than Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and John Wayne Gacy combined. He said that he had been doing this. He killed his first patient approximately six months after he became a respiratory therapist, and he became a respiratory therapist in 1989. And remember this interview that we were conducting with Saldivar was taking place in March of 1998. So we're looking at nine years of uh, you know, work that he had been doing at local hospitals. Saldivar's confession was shocking, almost unbelievable, according to Glendale detective Mario Yagoda. Did we have a person that was psychologically unstable, or did we truly have a murderer? And that's what made it difficult, even after his confession. Because the confession, a lot of things he was saying, a lot didn't make sense, and a lot did make sense. According to the district attorney's office, the confession was not enough. To convict Saldivar of murder, they needed corroborating evidence. Well, the district attorney told us at this point all we had was a confession. We had no physical evidence. We had no identified victims. That there were a number of things that we had to do before we could even think about filing charges against Mr. Saldivar for murder. The detectives had only 48 hours to find hard evidence of Saldivar's crimes. Without it, they'd be forced to free him. If he was a serial killer, the investigators knew putting him on the streets could mean more innocent people would die. The next morning, detectives arrived at Salivar's home armed with a search warrant. They were looking for something to prove he had been poisoning patients. Saldivar lived with his parents. His older brother stood by, watching as they searched Efren's bedroom. The officers uncovered almost 100 pornography tapes, but they didn't find any paralyzing drugs. They did find Versid, a sedative often used in conjunction with a paralyzing drug called Pavulon. Detective John McKillop was disappointed when they didn't have better luck at the hospital. We didn't find pavulon or succinylcholine chloride. And again, you know, we believed those drugs were used, so the only thing we could rely on um, was, up to that point, was the word of Bob Baker, who said he saw one of those drugs in his locker. But we didn't, we can't prove that he saw it because we never found it in his locker. They did find the printout of a blood gas test, the name on the bottom concerned police. Well, one of the things that uh, sticks out in my mind was a um, paper that, uh, where he had listed himself as Dr. Jack Kevorkian um, on the paper. And obviously, we all know Dr. Kevorkian as an individual who believes in uh, assisted suicide. And that kind of struck us as odd and suspicious in and of itself that here we have somebody who's confessed to killing a number of patients and he's got something in his locker at his workplace uh, identifying himself as Dr. Uh, Kevorkian. CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London in 2021 on Saturday the 25th and 26th September.
Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered with crime and investigation and a perfect opportunity to meet fellow true crime enthusiasts. Limited tickets are on sale now at crimecon.co.uk and we have an exclusive discount code for you. To claim your discount, enter the code REAL at checkout. That's R-E-A-L, REAL. Head over to crimecon.co.uk now. 
The Glendale police needed to find some hard evidence to put Saldivar behind bars. But it now seemed that finding it would be nearly impossible. None of us had ever dealt with a serial killer uh, before. So it was something that took us all by surprise, along with the fact we have no evidence of uh, any homicides, nothing. All we have is a confession. So there wasn't really anything tangible uh, for us to identify at that point. So it was, um, there was a bunch of different emotions uh, that were going through all of our minds. The detectives set up headquarters at a house on hospital property. They needed a secure place to conduct their investigation. Information leaks could prove fatal to building a case against Saldivar. We knew we were going to be under scrutiny from the public and from the press, and we also knew that we had a suspect out on the loose. He was no longer in custody. Uh, the progress of the case had to be kept very confidential from him, uh, from the news. We really needed to keep this one under wraps, and being in the police department with such a big investigation, there's no way we could have kept the information confidential. The officers started gathering the hospital records of Saldivar's patients. In them, they hoped to find evidence of murder. While detectives began looking into the past, they made sure not to lose track of their suspect. Saldivar could run at any moment, and investigators knew there would be nothing they could do to stop him. Efren Saldivar had admitted to killing as many as 100 patients at a California hospital. But without physical proof to back up his confession, detectives are forced to free him. Detective Randy Osborne conducted interviews with Saldivar's friends and family to see if they could shed any light on his guilt or innocence. I wanted to find out as much as I could about Efren Saldivar, dating back to his early childhood. Uh, I even went to his high school and got a copy of his yearbook, contacted schoolmates. Detectives tracked down one of Saldivar's high school girlfriends. Did you know Efren Saldivar? She said her last conversation with Saldivar disturbed her. They had a conversation about uh, their futures and what they wanted to do in life. And Efren at that time explained to her that uh, he was going to be uh, participating in training for uh, respiratory therapy. Uh, she told him that she was impressed by that, that uh, that was a very noble and worthwhile profession. But then the discussion took an unsettling turn. He mentioned to her that he wanted to get in this profession so he could help people, but also so he could help people by putting them out of their misery. And he explained that he had a hard time seeing people suffer and that he would not uh, have a problem with uh, killing people. Detective Osborne also interviewed Saldivar's co-workers. I learned that uh, Efren was a very quiet individual. Uh, most people that I spoke to uh, described him as standoffish, and quiet, he kind of uh, existed in the shadows. Many of his co-workers described him as someone who was lazy and who was uncaring towards the people that he was being paid to take care of. A nurse who often worked with Saldivar spoke with the detectives. She told them a few years ago he did something she found very disturbing. She explained to us that she was working at the hospital with Efren and that there was a male patient in one of the rooms who was there uh, in, in very bad condition, uh, near death. Uh, 
And one night, uh, she heard an alarm go off in the patient's room. The patient had stopped breathing. Uh, Efren was in the room at that time. She started to work on the patient. She looked up at Efren and she stated, uh, can you come help me? This patient is flatlining. At that time, he raised his finger to his mouth and went shh, as indicating to her, don't do any work on the patient, leave well enough alone and just let him pass away. Um, that shocked her. And at that moment, another nurse uh, came running into the room and they were able to resuscitate the, uh, the patient. That really shook her. Um, she didn't want to work with uh, Saldivar after that. At that time, she said she felt she had to come forward with this information. This information about Saldivar was troubling. If he was poisoning patients, then investigators would have to try and understand why in order to find his potential victims. John Trestrail of the Regional Poison Center in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has devoted his life to the study of poison and those who use it. The angel of death would be the kind of person who plays God. Uh, he selects a group of people or an individual to eliminate them, and, and this power gives them some kind of a psychological rush to be able to say, I will take your life whenever I choose. These people tend to be what I call stealth killers. They come at you when your back's turned. They come at you in the dark. Poison is very hard to find. Unlike a gunshot wound where the bullet's entry is easily recognizable, if investigators don't suspect poison, they won't look for it. In a poisoning case, the unknown offender rate is 20 to 30 times higher than any other form of murder. What does that mean? It means that the chances are 20 to 30 times better that you'll get away with this than any other form of murder. Death by poison is particularly insidious. The victim has little chance of avoiding his fate. If you are the victim, you'll never see it coming. There's no defense. Breathe it, drink it, eat it, inject it. You'll never see it. The officers realized the prospect of finding poison was not good. They asked for help from many agencies who all told them they had little chance of finding paralyzing drugs. Detective Daniel Hinojosa. We had consulted uh, certain members of the FBI, and they had worked on similar cases, cases involving the drugs that we were looking for, involving the drug Pavilon and the drug succinylcholine chloride. It was their opinion that we needed to find a certain type of toxicologist who could assist us in extracting these samples because as far as the majority of the scientific and medical community was concerned, we weren't going to find these drugs. The detectives had no choice but to move ahead. If they ever hoped to find evidence of poison, it was now buried with the suspected victims. To find the victims, the detectives realized they would have to decipher thousands of complex medical charts. It was unfamiliar territory. When we got these medical records, you can imagine that uh, it's like sitting down and trying to read a language that you don't know how to speak. So all of us had to go out and buy medical dictionaries to understand a lot of what was being said in these medical charts in terms of uh, the treatments that the patients were receiving, the medical conditions that they were being treated for. The detectives began searching the charts for suspicious deaths. Uh, yeah, again. 
They consulted experts like Dr. Dale Isaev to help them identify the possible use of poison. What particularly I would look for, and I saw a number of examples of this, is that the patient had been admitted with a serious illness, had responded to treatment, and was doing relatively well in review of the vital signs of respiratory pattern, pulse, blood pressure, heart rhythm on the monitor appeared to be stable. And then the patient abruptly experiences a decrease in heart rate where the heart would progressively decelerate or go slower over a relatively short time period, over a few minutes or so, where the patient would experience then full cardiac arrest with the heart activity just ceasing altogether. Notes made by the hospital staff provided initial clues. I then went back and very carefully looked at the nursing notes and tried to make a determination how had that patient been doing clinically. If all the vital signs were stable, the nurses concluded the patient was doing well, and in fact in some of the patients it was anticipated that there was going to be an early discharge. Uh, either home or to another facility, and then to see a note in the chart, patient found dead in bed, was something that caught my attention. Dr. Isaev told investigators to search for a reverse of the normal dying process. Normally, a patient's heart stops, then their respiration fails. But if a person is poisoned with a drug such as Pavulon, the reverse would occur. If an individual is given a paralyzing agent, one of the first things that happens is the patient or the individual is not able to breathe, or the impaired, there's impaired breathing function that very quickly leads to not being able to breathe. The heart will survive for a time, but then rapidly will slow down and the heart will stop. This type of death leaves behind disturbing clues, according to Mario Yagoda. We knew that these patients, there was a desire to live, so you see the racing of the heart. So in other words, like when a person's scared, uh, you know, the, the heart speeds up. So we'd see these speeding up of the heart uh, rhythms on the uh, EKG strips. And that's what we looked. We looked for these rhythms in the heart that would show some sort of fight or flight uh, syndrome. The detectives hoped information in patient medical charts would lead them to some proof of murder. The medical charts were only the first step to finding hard evidence, pavulon, or succinylcholine chloride in human flesh. We were ultimately going to have to exhume bodies. We were going to have to have specialists uh, come in to test uh, the tissue samples that we got during the autopsies to see whether or not these drugs were present, whether or not these drugs were even going to be detectable. The detectives had to find some way to narrow the potential victim list. So we decided that we would probably pick a number of about two years prior to the incident. Um, from that, we had to go through and compile every patient that had been that had died at this hospital while Mr. Saldivar was on duty. Because more recent cases offered a better chance of finding traces of paralyzing drugs, they ignored Saldivar's first seven years. That brought their list down to 171. Of those, 54 were excluded because their remains were not available. That left 117 deaths to investigate. 
Each detective took a series of patients. If they found anything suspicious, they had to present it to the group. And we had to go to bat for them. We had to fight in a round table type of atmosphere where we all got together, we presented our cases, and we discussed our cases, our individual cases, and why it is we thought that they should be exhumed. And of course, we couldn't exhume them all. When they found a patient who fit the profile, they posted their name on a board of possible victims to exhume. The list was beginning to grow. Deciding who to exhume was their first problem. Finding evidence of poison was their second. For help, they contacted Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, a high-tech government research facility near Oakland, California. It employs approximately 10,000 scientists doing chemistry, physics, nuclear, and forensics work. Brian Andreessen is director of the lab's Forensic Science Center. He was unsure he could help when he first learned of the drugs the police were searching for. I looked up these drugs and everything that had been known about them. And it was interesting, a lot of these drugs, of course, to be used in people, have to be tested and tested, and the data on that testing has to be published, and I read all those papers, but no one had really taken these drugs out of a healthy human and then analyzed it after someone had died and been buried for a long time, because those work, that kind of work had not been done with these drugs to any great extent. Andreessen also learned succinylcholine chloride, the drug spotted in Saldivar's locker, quickly breaks down into chemicals that are naturally found in the body. Their best bet was to test for pavulon, but no test existed that could detect pavulon in decomposing human tissue. You would have to develop one. I wasn't that confident because it never really had been done before, but I was willing to give it a very substantial try to see if I could develop a protocol that would work. On March 27, 1998, the story of Saldivar's suspension and the possible murders broke in the media. The community was outraged at the possibility their relatives had been murdered in their hospital beds. The phones were ringing off the hook at the station, as well as the offsite where we were now housed at, with people wanting to know whether or not their loved one was a victim of Saldivar's. Officers used the information provided by family members to aid their investigation. The inquiries that we received from the families helped us in two ways. One is we went back and looked at those particular cases. If they felt they were suspicious, maybe it warranted some additional research on our part. If this case is suspicious, well, this warrants an additional interview with this family member. What did you see? Where were you? Where were you at bedside at the time that your loved one passed away? In the midst of the media frenzy, officers watching Saldivar's house noticed he had not returned for several days. At that point, I believe he was still in hiding. We didn't know his whereabouts. So we did lose track of him for a while uh, after he was uh, released from custody. If Saldivar had fled, the detectives knew they'd have little chance of ever putting their suspected serial killer behind bars. In the next episode, detectives arrange to have bodies exhumed as they search for evidence of Saldivar's guilt. This podcast episode is based on the documentary Angel of Death. 
It is directed by Jeff Fine and produced by New Dominion Pictures. You can watch this story plus many others in full length for free if you go to Real Stories' YouTube channel. I am your host, Stephanie Bauer. If you liked this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review and help us spread the word. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Real Stories Docs. That's one word, Real Stories Docs, spelled D-O-C-S. See you next week. Until then, stay safe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.